You're listening to the Fix the Money, Fix the World Show on the Bitcoin Made Simple Podcast Network. Here's your host, Luke Mikic. Welcome back to the podcast, guys, and welcome back to what is a delayed episode um, of the podcast here today. I don't think I've put one out for nearly two and a half weeks, so I apologize for that one, guys. I've been very, very, very busy trying to organize my escape from the Australian Gulag, but that's uh, that's for another conversation. In today's episode, I'm introducing an interview I wrote with a Canadian Bitcoiner by the name of Drew McMartin. Uh, we talked about all of his recent articles that he's been putting out. He's been doing some really, really, really great work. Um, you guys should definitely go and read his articles that we're going to discuss today about Bitcoin, hyperinflation, and all the similarities that today's clown world simulation has to prior hyperinflationary events. There are lots and lots of red flags, and Drew and I go through all of those today. So I really hope you're going to enjoy this one. Uh, Before we jump in, though, we should hear from today's show sponsor, who is Coinbeast. Do you need Bitcoin support? You can book a one-on-one video call with a Bitcoin pro on Coinbeast Connect. You can ask questions about mining, self-custody, multi-sig, how to run a full node and how to set up the Lightning Network and how to accept Bitcoin payments. Simply go to coinbeast.com, select a pro and find a time when you're available. It's that simple. Learning about Bitcoin has never been easier. Okay, guys, so welcome back to the podcast. Today, I've got the pleasure of sitting down with Drew McMartin, someone who I've never spoken to before. Uh, (laughs) Drew, it's really nice to meet you, mate. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to uh, chat. I uh, it's nice to put like an actual interaction with someone you see on Twitter, which is just like a a picture. Yeah, <laughs> and it's, some it's, stories. Yeah. It's it's so different. Um, like when you meet people on Twitter, when you meet them, uh, I kind of picture the emoji or the profile picture. I was like, ah, oh, yeah. so this is this is him. This is nice to finally put a face to the. the... I'm like very unoriginal. <laughs> hey, yours is, yours is better than mine. Oh. <laughs> oh, I like yours. I like yours. It's good. Mine, so. I need something a little bit more, maybe professional is the word. <laughs> um, yeah, okay. So let's jump straight on into it, Drew. Maybe yeah. before we get into talking about some of the great articles you've written on inflation and hyperinflation, maybe you can give the listeners a little bit of background about what you're doing before you found Bitcoin and maybe the lead up to you finding Bitcoin. Sure. Yeah. So like I'm like a city planner by trade. Like I went to school to become a city planner and was very much on the straight and narrow sort of in the system for a very long time. So um, I was in school for a while and it took me, uh, I would say it took me like two years almost to like unlearn um, how I sort of was taught in school. School is a, school is a crazy thing (laughs) in terms of nothing's like based on efficiency in school, but um, yeah, so I, I was a city planner. I had sort of worked as a city planner for about five years. It wasn't really for me, kind of quit that, started to use the city planning more for like land development. Um, and I have a company where we sort of consult with land developers on sort of what they can build, where they can build it. Um, but that sort of getting out of the rat race of like being a city planner, city planner was fine, but it was, I mean, you could pretty much fast forward the next 30 years of your life and I was going, getting pretty bored. So, um, so kind of left that to do my own thing. And that sort of freed me up, sort of going out on my own, which is like entrepreneurs are crazy. You gotta, you gotta, entrepreneurs have a certain like 
look in their eye, like a freedom, a fire <laughs> in their eyes, just because it's, um, you, especially when you're starting out, like when I started out, you, you don't know where your next like meals coming from for a while. <laughs> it's, it's a bit of a, a crazy way to sort of get into things, but it, having that, like being sort of into having your own company freed me up to sort of allocate my time differently than like a nine to five. Like I find like a nine to five, no knock against it. it you know, you got to pay the bills. <laughs> it's really hard to leave it, but I find it's just sort of, you go to work, you come home, you have your like nighttime sort of unwind, and then you just do the next thing <laughs> the next day and just sort of ticks, ticks along. So uh, as a sort of having my own company, I started like allocating like a, an hour or two a day <laughs> to, um, I guess it was back in 2019. Uh, a friend showed me a video who we actually have a blog. Uh, his name's Taylor. Like we have a blog just about financing as we're trying to like share, share what we've learned with others. But he sent me a video on like Ray Dalio's how the economy works. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but it's an awesome, that was like the first video I've ever watched. I was never like into macroeconomics before that. I just watched that video and I was like, this makes sense to someone like me, like, someone who doesn't understand this at all. <laughs> and it was just like a very simple, it's like a 30 minute long video um, on explaining like sort of how the economy works. And, and that was, I guess, the fall of 2019. So at that time, the repo markets were like happening. <laughs> and, you know, people, people now are, the repo markets now are <laughs> crazy when you compare them to then. But back then that was like a big deal, like banks not lending to each other was a big deal. Um, and that showed like there was like something, something wrong with the system. It wasn't quite functioning. So I, I started getting like really into macroeconomics. I was like, something, something's wrong. Like th they're not lending to each other. There's this massive like increase in like the repo markets. And I originally sort of was going down the path of gold being like, Oh, gold's a solution and started researching a lot about gold. And then from gold sort of stumbled upon Max Kaiser, like ripping Peter Schiff, this would have been <laughs> in 2019. And I was like, oh, this is like, what are you saying? It's crazy. But then I realized, no, it's not. Um, so started sort of shifting a bit more from the from the gold space and starting, starting to discover Bitcoin a bit more. And then like once COVID hit, that was sort of, to me, like an excellent opportunity to like really get into the space as I was, you know, the, the market had at that time, I think it pulled back pretty pretty far in mark march of 2020 i guess it was so 18 19 months ago and that was sort of um that was when i sort of started researching it a bit more and that's sort of basically what led me to the bitcoin pass so i would say like ray dalio via max kaiser which then led me to read the bitcoin standard and from there it was just like boom i was there's no coming back from the bitcoin standard uh, I've bought that book for multiple people. The sad thing is most of them have not read it, <laughs> um, but what can you do? So, you know, you, you can't, you can't make some, you can't make a horse drink water <laughs> at a watering trough. So um, some of my close family and friends, I'll, I just kind of keep hammering them, keep hammering them. But, you know, that book doesn't even talk about Bitcoin <laughs> for the first nine chapters and, it, that to me that was just like a light went off it was like everything that i had learned that sort of like the intuition that the money and the economy was not functioning properly like it all came together at that book 
And then from there, I just started doing my own research. Just um, from there, we'd like start our blog. So from reading the Bitcoin standard, I was like, oh, this is bad. I need to like, I, I thought that I felt like there's a, a burden of responsibility <laughs> for me to like tell others what's going on because people are going to get totally wiped out. And I don't like to say that because people just will like um, radio, I guess you would call it, or podcast, just that clip of like the people will get totally wiped out. But <laughs> studying all historical inflation, they all get wiped out. Like everyone who doesn't understand what's going on loses all their savings. It's like the great reset is basically your dollars or whatever your currency is, don't meet, they don't have any value anymore. And most people don't realize that's happening until like either three quarters of it is already gone or like it's all gone and they still don't really realize it's like this um yeah frog in a boiling pot right <laughs> exactly like, you know 10 years ago if someone told you inflation was you know six percent one percent in a year or in a month 0.9 percent in a month someone would be like whoa that's crazy but you know because it's been this gradual increase um people don't really people aren't reacting like bitcoiners are reacting. like bitcoin Bitcoiners are buying like freezers to put their meat in. <laughs> um, others are are not doing that. So, yeah. So that's that's a long answer to explain a short question. But that's sort <laughs> that's of what how we're I here got for. Into... That's what we're here yeah. for, Drew. We want to learn more yeah. about you. I think that was a I think that was a great answer. Um, and as Bitcoiners, we do kind of feel that burden of responsibility. Um, like once we realize what's going on here. And it's such a it's such an event, hyperinflation or a currency collapse. It's an event that doesn't come around very rarely. So, like I 100% agree with you. I think people on pensions and fixed incomes and superannuation they're going to lose it all. They're going to lose 99% of their purchasing power because all of that's depreciated in the us dollar or the australian dollar or it's yeah it's very very so it's all denominated like well the us that like their pension fund what do they say it, it um like their you know government pension fund for everybody has it has funding for another what 13 years 12 years i think it is now they yeah. change it changes like it used to be 20 years now it's like every year they like knock another year off and it's like well how are you how are they making up the difference for this? Like what happens in 10, 20 years when they don't have any more money for the pension? Like people say Bitcoin's a Ponzi, but like you're, <laughs> they're literally the biggest bag holders are going to be the people who work hard saving dollars. Like they're the bag holders in this whole thing. And I don't, I, I don't like that. <laughs> it like, I don't want to say keeps me up at night, but it definitely like pisses me off that they're not really explaining to people what's happening. Like no, no one's telling you this. Um, except for maybe Bitcoiners, but I, I find most Bitcoiners, are, if you're trying to speak to people who are sort of in the traditional streams of life, they either like immediately dismiss it, <laughs> um, thinking that they know better or they don't even really, it's what you're saying is uncomfortable and it requires like a great deal of change. And I can only imagine like what's going to happen to people when Bitcoin is going to be forced upon them like they're just going to wake up one day and say like i have to accept this currency like i'm sure for you luke like for me like my process has been like a gradual 18 months of like continually turning up the bitcoin pressure and knowledge and like learning about it other people are not going to have that luxury they're going to be like <laughs> um they're going to have like 
I don't know, two months, you yeah. know, all of a sudden there's gonna be a time saying like, okay, you know, you have to, you have to make your switch at some point. So they're, they're not going to have nearly the, the slow learning curve that people like you or me have had. <laughs> I, I think I had a very similar journey to you actually. Um, I yeah. think you mentioned it when you were talking about your introduction and background, you had to unlearn a lot of things. And I, I was the same. Like, I think I left uni in 2018 and I kind of spent a year or two, like a very gradual process, trying to learn more about stocks, uh, the long-term debt cycle, that video you mentioned earlier, Ray Dalio's, uh, how the economic machine works. I was looking at that. I was quote unquote diversified for a couple of years. And then the repo market started blowing up in 2019 and the yield curve inverted in 2019. And then that's when I started really taking it seriously. Uh, it sounds like a, I went through a very similar rabbit hole that you, that you yeah, went Yeah, very, very, very similar. And I was the same way. Like I, I, the very first books I bought were like on stocks and like how to make money in the stock market, how to invest in stocks. And I was like, okay, this is, and I, you know, as you're starting to learn, you're realizing like, there's not that many people that study this. Yeah. <laughs> um, these like, genius stock people are you know some of them are very, very educated but a lot of them are just like have found this like niche market <laughs> where not a lot of people are studying it and it's like well you, you can make a lot a lot of money on this but um yeah i'm in the same way as you i was like like the stock market today it's like what, what's the point <laughs> yeah um if you if you studied studied any inflation like oh yeah it's ripping like oh boy it's ripping and then you like denominate it in like purchasing power and it's like gone nowhere like it, even in even like most mainstream media doesn't even understand today that the stock market at all time highs hasn't gone anywhere if you like subtract the new money that's been printed. Like to me, that is a, like a very basic thing <laughs> that you would think most people would know. Bitcoiners for sure understand that, um, but I would say like most mainstream media people don't understand that. They're they're like, oh, it's all time highs. Like this is crazy, and like I I like was originally a value investor, like before I was a Bitcoiner, like that to me made sense. Like reading Buffett, although I've recently like written articles on why Buffett and Munger are like totally wrong, which is crazy. Never, like two years ago, you never would have, if you told me like, yeah, you're like actively writing articles, like going against these billionaires that you used to idolize, I would have said you're crazy, but that's what, <laughs> that's what Bitcoin does to people, right? Like it, it, it realizes that many people who are like confident in their um, way of thinking of things have not done a lot of research on the topic that you're, you're discussing. And that, that to me is like a, a crazy, that, that took a while to get my head around that too. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> and now, yeah. no, you go, sorry. Yeah, what were you gonna conversation say? With someone. I'm just, I, nowadays I'm just like, if I, if someone says something, I just immediately assume like how much, how much time have you like spent researching this? Like, I'm just so critical <laughs> of anybody just from, from hearing these opinions of being, and I was like, to, to totally canon. I, I don't hide this. I was like on the other side of the Bitcoin trade in 2017. And I was a guy saying like, didn't do any research was like, just looking at the chart going up. <laughs> and I was like, this is unsustainable. This is like, a logarithmic growth and I don't understand basically saying I don't understand this I looked at the chart for five minutes and I'm telling others that, that you shouldn't buy this <laughs> at the time which was stupid like you know the, the price what did it even peak at 19,000 it's like what 300 percent since the very top of that <laughs> cycle so um 
terrible advice for me back then, but uh, I hadn't, I hadn't done the work. So I, I only really started. I remember like, I think maybe it was in 2018, even before repo, I, I just like Googled the price of Bitcoin one time. Cause like it went up, everyone was following it. It went down 2017. I just assumed it went to zero. I didn't even like check it for, you know, a year. <laughs> and then you check it and it's like, Oh, it's at 4,000. And it's like, well, why didn't this go to zero? Like all of these, fiat economists were saying it was going to zero and if it was a bubble the backside of the bubble is not finding like four grand as a price point it's zero so that to me was like the first thing like i'm missing something something's going on here that i have not took the time to understand little did i realize how much time you actually have to like spend to actually learn about bitcoin but um yeah at the time i was just clearly aware that I had missed something at that point. And then, you know, from 2017 to 2019, it just, all it was doing, it was just sort of consolidating, getting like higher lows, lower highs. <laughs> You're just like, this is, this is going much higher. And sure enough, it has, but as you know, I'm sure you're probably the same way. Like the price of the Bitcoin does, it's like, I don't even really, I, mean, I follow the price now, but like, I really more look at like adoption and, sort of the the hash rate <laughs> accumulation yeah. and the there's like so many different um areas of accumulation so like 2017 was like all retail like guys aping in aping out getting lots of people losing their shirts it's so different now like there's countries <laughs> um i which yeah, I mean, if you go back what six months when it was june june was less than six months ago that's crazy like the announcement in June to like what's already happened in like three or four months is insane. You have institutions, companies like actively holding it on their balance sheet. S&P 500 companies have Bitcoin. Then you've got retail still, but you've got retail that instead of guys like you and me in their basement with like small, small, you know, stacks, you've got billionaires. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a bit different. And then you've got... um pension funds that's that's that one that one's so new too um but you know like we said you know pension funds are going to get totally blown out which they are like they every single pension fund is underfunded and the like six percent rates that they need they have to get into such risky investments right now that it doesn't even make sense for them to hold like a pension fund is supposed to be conservative and supposed to make like preserve your purchasing power over time so I would say almost every single pension fund is going to have to own a good chunk of Bitcoin in the next four years. <laughs> and how bullish um, is it that 170 year old pension fund mass mutuals buying hundreds yeah. of millions of dollars worth of Bitcoin? Yeah. Then there was a, was there a company in Norway? I think it was like, um, you remember this? It was maybe like five or six months ago. I forget the name of the yeah. company. So kind of and there was a, there was a fire department. Wasn't there a pension fund in one of the, uh the u.s states recently that also put bitcoin in their pension fund well there, there's one in canada they're um out in alberta like the i think it's called the blue collar podcast like they're i think firefighters from actually you know maybe they're not in yeah maybe they're in the u.s but they're they're from western either canada or u.s and they're they're actively saying like hey our pension is not worth it's not it's it's not gonna add up well, <laughs> and what? the people sorry go ahead no, no, you go, you go. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, it's, you know, they, they're realizing, like, their pension's not adding up. 
And if they want to actually have a pension on the other side, like they've got to get this into Bitcoin. So that's they've like they've started a podcast and have realized that their their pensions underfunded. So I would say like how many how many people work in a company that has a pension? <laughs> like that's you know that's a lot of money <laughs> that I think is going to be making its way into the Bitcoin space just because it kind of has to. <laughs> the the onus on the like entry level person now in terms of their expenses and what they pay is just crazy. Like, and you're, what we're paying for is like, I'll, I'll say the mistakes, uh, or maybe not the mistakes, but like the short sightedness of the previous generations. <laughs> and they've pulled so much demand from the future that they've just taken all this future demand and like pulled it to today that the, the system can't even handle that anymore. Like it, it's, it's, it's literally breaking down right now. <laughs> and this might tie into like the inflation articles. Like this breakdowns in systems is not a new thing. Um, and the fact that we're seeing it today puts us like, you know, if, if you're looking at that chart there, like 1919 <laughs> is when this, if you're comparing it to Weimar is when these, I would say inflation issues became uh, un- uh, impossible to sort of cover up. So you, you can no longer hide this from the general public. <laughs> you can't say that there's no inflation. And this was happening you know, for a year. Like I remember getting eggs at the store like a year ago and be like, those are more. <laughs> yeah. And the egg market isn't like a booming economy. And people, <laughs> people still think like, I, you know, I've heard from people who get used cars like, oh, used cars are really ripping. <laughs> like, no, no, they're not. Used cars like only go down in value. Like they're, they're getting older. They require maintenance. They're not like assets. And if you can take that car and return it for more than you bought it for, like there's not an amazing car market all of a sudden, like your money is screwed up. <laughs> the, Bitcoin is on, yeah, the Bitcoiners on the sidelines just screaming at people. No, it's not the eggs. It's not the cars. It's not the homes. It's the money. The, the money's yeah. broken. Which, you know, again, I, I think is, I mean, I think that should be self-evident to most, but I guess for most people, like you're not like who the heck is watching a macroeconomics video <laughs> on YouTube. Like, you know, you, me, you could probably count the amount of people like less than a hundred thousand for sure. <laughs> well, you touched so, on it earlier. Uh, that's what shocked me the most when I came into the Bitcoin space was just how little research these experts were actually doing on money, like these property yeah. investors, the stock investors, none of them were talking about money or fiat money. And when I got into the Bitcoin space and, you know, started talking to people like yourself and reading things like the Bitcoin standard, I was like, oh shit, it, it's the money. It, yeah. Yeah. And I think when you're in the system and the system is like good to you, you don't question it. Right. Um, so I think that's why younger people are, much more open to Bitcoin because they kind of look around. I'm not saying I'm younger, but I'm not, <laughs> you know, 50, I don't think I you're old at all, mate. <laughs> uh, some days I've, some days I feel it, but um, that's why it's so, it's so much like, I have so much more credit for these, um, you know, boomer Bitcoiners. Like it's uh, whew, to like spend your whole life under one system and be like, Hey, no, the systems, they realize that that is not right. <laughs> And our switching is like, I have huge, huge respect for those guys. But yeah, the you know, when you're in the system, like I remember 
the more money you had, like when I was a city planner, I remember people would come in and they'd have a lot of money and I had like no money at, at, <laughs> at the time. And I, I was just always surprised at like how little research they were doing on properties that they were buying. And I was like, these are like million dollar properties. Like, don't you want to like spend way more time than me? Like <laughs> on this, you know, if I put like at the time, like a very small amount of money, I'm like researching it very hard because I don't, I can't lose that money. It's like all the money I have. And the, so I guess as you get sort of more money in the fiat system, you kind of splash it around. And you don't, you don't notice that the, the money is breaking. You just, the easy thing to do is just say like, yeah, my returns are way up. <laughs> yeah. This is great. You know, but then you're like, okay, well, subtracted from the money supply like are you at least are you at least making your returns over the money supply and like most people don't even do that <laughs> like the money supply like what is it 40 percent of all dollars have been printed in the last two years <laughs> less than that yeah I, like... I popped into a stock i popped into an equity space the other day and i they were talking about how the s&p 500's up i don't know what seven or eight hundred percent since the 2000 tech bubble crash yeah. and i just kind of yeah. said to them i said no it's not stocks are crashing stocks are actually down 30 percent from the 2000 tech bubble peak when you denominate the s&p 500 by the m2 balance sheet and they're like no nah, no nah, i can't it can't be no uh, i can't and i'm not gonna look at it i'll just assume that you're wrong <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> Exactly. Um, I I think someone at like Bitcoin Magazine in a, a group sort of messaged um, shared that that stock that you're saying, and it's like it's like a line like this. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I was just like, ooh, that's it's, a crazy chart. <laughs> speaking of crazy charts, this is probably a good segue uh, yeah. into looking at some of the comparisons you made in a really good article you wrote talking about the German hyperinflation. Uh, for anyone tuning in on Apple Podcast or Spotify and you don't have the privilege uh, of having a look at the video, jump over onto the YouTube now because Drew and I are going to have a look at a, a few of the great charts he uh, published in those articles. So uh, walk us through what we're looking at at the moment on screen, Drew. Sure. Yeah. So on the like left of the screen, this was taken from an article that I pulled on uh, Weimar. I wanted it because I was writing this for a thread. I wanted it to be as like a standardized source. Um, so this is like the monetary base uh, of Weimar. So uh, I wanted to compare that to today because the article, this all, this whole article stemmed from me just talking to some friends on Twitter saying like the book that we need to be reading right now is when money dies by like Neil Ferguson, which is um, about uh, a British ambassador in Berlin. And basically this guy who has nothing to do with Weimar, just kind of looking around being like, what is happening here is crazy. And he's just totally outside of it. And explain it. It's like a, like an anthropologist almost. <laughs> um, and so what, what we're looking at here is like the growth of money in Weimar. And there's many reasons for this, but the main one was they went to war in World War I on debt and they thought that they were going to pay it back when they won. <laughs> so you can see like 1914 to 1918 is still pretty flat. I would call that like the, the stage one of like a currency debasing. Like it's the slow very slow like we're not we're adding money it's not really a big deal maybe at the time it was because you you haven't added to your balance sheet much and then then the chart starts to like really bend up and technically today if you look at 
today in our money supply, like we're in the, like the really bendy part of the curve, but um, yeah, so that, that's, that's the chart for like, that stays money supply. So it, it kind of follows the same sort of three, three areas. So that, that first billion took 30, 40 years to, to get, you know, 1 billion on the balance sheet. Then the next uh, 3 billion took 10 years. (laughs) So three times as much and, you know, 20, 25% of the time. And then since COVID, like this chart is like shooting straight up. And that was kind of the, why I wanted to compare this to the other article. So like when the chart's shooting straight up, if you compare that to the Weimar chart, like the Weimar is doing the same thing. So it had this like gradual, then it had this sort of 45 degree. And then, you know, by depending on where you're taking it from, like 1922, maybe even 1921, things get like out of control. Um, So I would say like, I would say we're probably in terms of like inflationary reactions at 1919. But if you look at those charts, like we're, closer to if you look just if you're just looking at the bend of the charts like we're in 1922 if you're comparing them to weimar which is like really scary i i i don't think we're that crazy but um yeah yeah there's the bend so this this is a chart that's showing like the amount of money in gold marks and you'll see this in like bitcoin twitter charts right now like the sine curve one um (laughs) And, it, and actually, it's a pretty cool chart when you overlay like the Bitcoin layer to this. I think it's like very crazy as it's similar. I, I would say like the Bitcoin chart like so, sort of gets 1921, 22. But the, the, the thing that I like kind of pull out of this is like the gold went up and down and like the, um, the volatility changed. Like those are sort of showing snapshots of one year. But in those years there was going a lot more up and down. I don't think I put it in my chart. You might have that, but um, the volatility each year was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And yeah, you might have it there. Yeah. I'll pull it up for the, for the viewers. I've got it somewhere. Um, People. So this is a, this is a good um, advice for people to not go out there and be leverage trading. Like, yes, you're picking the right asset in Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, And yes, in 10 years, we expect Bitcoin to be worth infinite amounts of uh, Australian pesos or any fiat currency around the world. But the volatility is uh, uh, it's crazy during the currency collapse. So I, I look at this chart and I like it's it's getting bigger and bigger, and gold is just a rock. Like we're talking about Weimar, <laughs> the gold is not all of a sudden this amazing market and this terrible market and this amazing market and it's terrible. It's just a just a rock or a mineral that doesn't sort of decay, which has had historical value for thousands of years. Which okay, fair enough. It's also you know ten times the size of Bitcoin, so a lot more people today say it has value. But if you're looking at this chart. I look at this as like a heart monitor, like someone who's like been hooked up to an ECG or EKG. I forget what they're called. I think it's ECG. Anyway, don't, don't, don't <laughs> pretend to know it. <laughs> don't ask me um, for medical, medical terminology. Oh, I have no clue. <laughs> no, I, I'll just stick to the uh, economic stuff, but <laughs> yeah. basically the gold isn't the volatility. It's in this case, like the Weimar marks. So they're printing more marks and it's like, it's like a, a heart attack happening. <laughs> so the mark is having a heart attack when I look at this chart. Like the it goes up and down more, right? Like it's the volatility is just going higher, 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 and then eventually it flatlines, right? So 
the volatility at some point becomes zero because the mark has no value. So, and, th and this is happening like today, like this volatility is happening. You, you've seen it in all assets. Like, like lumber is up, I think year over year, 150%. It's down like 30% in a month. Yeah. Um, but it's still, you know, over a hundred percent in the last year. And it's like, did lumber ever used to do that? <laughs> and it's like, no, but lumber priced in uh, dollars sure looks pretty funny. <laughs> and that's the same as this chart. So like, you know, Weimar marks, they're, they're the one, they're the volatile asset. It's not the, it's not the gold here. The gold is just doing its thing. <laughs> and this, you know, fiat currency is going crazy. And there's these like backdrafts and they're, throughout that period, right? Like they're, they're increasing the balance sheet. So in 2008, like when they printed a bunch of money, they sort of pulled demand to, to today, but it was a good thing because, well, maybe not a good thing, but MMT, like modern monetary theory works in till it doesn't. <laughs> so in, in small doses, it's very effective. Like, cause you're pulling demand you're bringing it to today, but there becomes a time where it just has no effect anymore. And you've, what you've done is you've created so much demand and that we're seeing that today. If there is so much demand, it's unnatural. Like it's, it's more demand than you could possibly buy. <laughs> and uh, Jeff Booth says this, like um, when you have abundance in money, you have scarcity everywhere else. And when you have scarcity in money, you have abundance everywhere else. Like everyone's got extra dollars either through printing or you know maybe someone doesn't but lots of people have more money than they did a year ago now does that mean their money can buy more not necessarily but they've got more dollars so they're you know the, the whole system's trying to like reprice itself to today's dollars but it takes about 18 months from when you print it to like when that actually repricing shows up and they've been printing for a year and a half 19 months so even if they stop printing tomorrow, which they're increasing at an ex, you know, an increasing rate, like the next 18 months are going to be crazy <laughs> for I, people. I couldn't agree more with, with all of that. Um, you, you touched on it earlier, the, the larger the debt bubble grows, the faster they have to print. Um, I, I think what was something I messaged you earlier, it was um, that it was that case study that Hirschman Capital did. And I'm always shouting about this for months and months now, 51 out of 52 sovereign nations that have got it, that accumulated debt levels bigger than 130% to GDP defaulted on the debt, 51 out yeah. of 52. And the default usually comes in currency debasement or hyperinflation because it's much easier to just hyperinflate the currency. And I think that's yeah, what or, we're or in like Or increasing the balance sheet of your currency like that's also a default yeah <laughs> that no yeah. one seems to care about <laughs> and um, that the u.s is the... yeah the u.s yeah. just did that they just increased their balance sheet again and they i think they only kicked it down to december i i, I don't know what the actual date that they did i think it was only to like december because they were going to like default on their debts and their solution was increase the debt ceiling and, and they've done that eight times or nine times i don't know how many times they've done it but they just keep increasing it so like, I've never defaulted on my credit card. I just increased the balance. Like, <laughs> that's, that's what they're doing. If I did that, like the only difference is no one's like letting me increase my balance of my credit card that I'm not never paying off. And why do they do it at the highest level with like fiat currencies? I don't, I don't understand that either. <laughs> 
Exactly. Um, we, and if we print our own money, what is it? Counterfeiting. Uh, we, we can't do that. Yeah. But of course, when they do it, it's quantitative easing. Well, and this happened in Weimar and this is happening now. Um, like in Weimar, they had a huge deficit in their budget from 20 uh, or sorry, 1918. Like they had a big deficit because they lost the war. They had huge reparation payments that they had to make. So their only solution was to print more money to monetize their debt. So they're making up the, the surplus in their budget by just printing more money. <laughs> and that, again, to me, is like a huge red flag that they did that and that we are doing that now. <laughs> that's that's actually the exact year that, I, from memory, Germany crossed the that magic number, 130% debt-to-GDP oh, ratio. What was the one that didn't? Was it Japan? Yeah, it's Japan. And they're, yeah. they're just about to. Uh, what is it? The Bank of Japan owns 70% of the stock market over there? Wow. Well, Japan, Japan could get away with that for many years. And like, that's the, everyone's just like, Japan! Like, that's the, <laughs> the one argument that they say against that. But they're, they were net exporters. And they have been, right? So they can make up their difference in surplus and trade. Exactly. <laughs> the, the U.S. is not uh, a net positive importer exporter. <laughs> they, yeah, they have like a, a huge deficit in trade. Um, so Japan can kind of that'd be like Japan is like me saying I can raise my credit card bill, uh, you know, my bill because I'm getting more money at my job or I'm making more money. <laughs> so they, it's, you know, but eventually they're I don't know that that debt burden eventually I would say is probably going to crush them <laughs> at some point, especially if they lose productivity in their assets um, exactly it's only maths event you can only take on so much debt um you you drew a good comparison to um to germany with the weimar hyperinflation um another really interesting comparison that we're seeing today could be maybe michael saylor so you, oh, yeah. you wrote a really good article about hugo steins so maybe you can walk us through who hugo steins is yeah. and why he was the inflation king of the 1920s so hugo steins to summarize is basically michael saylor 100 years ago <laughs> <laughs> and when michael saylor i i'm i'm love to buy that guy a drink sometime i mean you know he's very busy but um because I'm asking this question, I'm like, I know you study history. I know you know who he is, and I know you're doing exactly like what he's done. Because <laughs> um, he is. He so Hugo Steins or Stines is technically the German way to say it, but I'll just be the ignorant saying Steins. Um, he basically was like a, you know, an entrepreneur, a businessman who studied macroeconomics, which funny trait about most billionaires is they either study history or economics or both. I think history and economics are like one in three in terms of topics that billionaires study. But he basically started realizing what was happening to Germany and he started taking out debt, which I'm always cautious when I say this on like a podcast or, or anywhere. There's a big difference between taking out like secured debt and over leveraging on margin on a trade. Like those are very different things. And I am a huge proponent in what he does i'm not in like going like 100 to 1 leverage on something so th this is very different than that so to your listeners don't get wrecked by 100 to 1 leverage it is bad. Like, the main thing is like don't lose your money and the risk tail with that much leverage of 
just getting totally wiped out is is crazy. But anyway, back Hugo, he basically started taking out these loans in German paper marks, and he owned fact his father like owned a factory. I think that's what he originally started with. But he was basically taking out these fiat loans um, and putting them into like scarce assets. So he was buying um, gold. He was buying infrastructure. So like railway shipping, um, which is, you know, shipping. What is the price of a shipping container now? <laughs> it's up like a thousand percent. Yeah, so, it's 10x, 10x. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, he this he was doing this, you know, 100, 100 years ago, but there wasn't Bitcoin 100 years ago. So he was sort of kind of splashing it around a bit. So he was doing gold, um, like buying metals. And basically his metals were going up in value. The debt that he had taken out was decreasing, right? Like if you, that chart that you showed where the paper mark like became essentially worthless. <laughs> um, yeah, that one. So he, he's basically taking his debts, his debts are losing in value and his assets are increasing in value relative to his declining debts. And that actually turned him from like, I would say an average businessman to like the richest man in Germany, <laughs> which is kind of nuts. And that's been talked about by people like some gold proponents for a very long time who he was like most gold bugs have the problem like 100% right. They just have a solution that to me is a bit dated. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I don't I never like try to knock on those people because like to, to figure all that out is very challenging to to sort of piece all that together um but like jim rickards was someone who talked about hugo shinnes like four four years ago or something like that so fast forward to michael saylor he's basically done the exact same thing and this was i think this was the first article i ever like wrote and um because i only started on twitter in january of this year wow <laughs> so i was just just at the point of yeah i i'm like a I would consider myself a hugely private person. <laughs> I have like no interest in like, um, at, at the time I didn't even really like want to, I was like, Oh, do I, do I go in on, do I use my own name? And I was like, Oh, it's just inauthentic for me to try to be someone who I wasn't. So I was like, I'll just be myself. But, um, yeah, that, so this was, I think the, first, well, the first article I ever wrote was like, you should buy Bitcoin and why you should buy Bitcoin. Actually the first, first article was like, the very first article I ever wrote for our blog, and that was one of the reasons I did the blog, was here is how you buy Bitcoin. And I was like, oh, that'll be fine. And I sent it to all my friends and like no one bought it. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense. So then I was like, okay, I think I think one person bought it on me saying like, you should buy this. So then I was like, okay, I need to like outline my thoughts more clearly. So the second article was like, this is why you should buy Bitcoin. <laughs> and then this, this third one was... Um, this was right when Michael Saylor was taking on like basically converting his whole balance sheet into Bitcoin. And that was sort of at the very beginning. I was like, okay, he, he knows what's going on here. And he was very public about what was happening and how his uh, debts were, or his, basically his cash reserves were like a melting ice cube of money. And then he started doing these bond raises <laughs> and I was like, okay, now he's, he's definitely, definitely studied history. He knows what he's doing. So he's, he's taking out bond debt on his stock. And I, I don't know. I don't know what the first one was. I don't know if the first one was just like a straight raise, but he's taken out a bunch of debt 
and then took it all that debt and bought Bitcoin. It's basically the exact same playbook. I like call it the Hugo Stein's playbook. <laughs> Love that. And it's good. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, for sure, he's he's studied this for sure. Um, obviously, I'm saying that without any confidence. I've never talked to the guy. <laughs> but, um, it's eerily similar what he's done. And every time he buys more Bitcoin, people are like surprised. And it's like, <laughs> Don't be surprised. Like he's going to keep doing this. Like this is he's going to take any reserves he's going to do and convert it into that. The, the one thing about this thing is Hugo actually ended up passing away in 1924, 25, like after the peak of the inflation. The debt method works, but it's always good to like pay off those debts when the currency is pretty much worthless. <laughs> Because eventually they'll get like re-denominated into probably Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, you don't want to like, you want to do this. You want the currencies to become, or the your debt to become worthless, but then you want to like pay it off um, before it, before they change from like dollars to Bitcoin. Like now you owe like X number of Bitcoin on your debts. I'll be like, oh, that sucks. <laughs> I have accomplished nothing at that point. So that would be the one thing. Um about this playbook is at some point, at some point you got to decide I need to like pay off my debts and just have my sort of scarce assets on the other end. Definitely. I think that's great advice. Um, definitely. I'm a little bit uh, scared of debt myself. Uh, I'm, I'm worried that there may be certain strings attached to debt in the coming years that could be linked to medical records or, or things like that. So yeah, I, I mean, that's, that's a whole different tangent, but yeah. definitely it's possible. I mean, I, I mean, there's kind of two ways that the central bank digital currencies, like in, in Weimar, they had a, a German paper mark and I thought this was hilarious. They like replaced it um, with like the Renton mark, which was also a fiat paper currency <laughs> that was also backed by nothing. Um, but that actually stopped inflation. So it, it shows you like, Inflation is a lot about confidence in the currency and velocity of the money. So they like they were like, oh, we had run out of inflation. So like, I know we'll create like a new currency. And then they ended up creating three or four over like a 10 year span before they finally got onto like a gold backed currency. Yeah. But that brings into the central bank digital currencies. Like two years ago, you never heard anything about central bank digital currencies, like nothing. And now they're like these central bankers are trying so hard to uh come out with them and get them out quickly and you know part of that is you could probably say is the control aspect of it like they're they're gonna have all control of it i would say the other aspect of that is they know this is, is exactly what germany did it's like okay well the the paper mark the dollar in this case it well let's come out with something new so people have confidence in this new currency because, you know, a new fiat currency, what is it? has got about 40 years before it <laughs> goes, yeah, 20, goes away. It's 27, the average lifespan of a fiat, something like that. Yeah. It's not, it's not long. <laughs> no, not long at all. So, and, and that's, that's because of human nature, right? Like a fiat currency could last forever. If you don't increase the supply of it, fiat currency, Bitcoin, like everything is just, it's a trust mechanism of where a certain amount of people think something has value i i don't trust fiat because i don't trust them to keep the supply the same yeah. <laughs> that's why i am in bitcoin it's bitcoin is really just a thing like a 
a paper like card has can sell for a million dollars it's it's a picture on paper like nfts same thing but if enough people say it has value it has value so like who, who am i to say something has value versus it doesn't but if i'm fast forwarding i i don't trust fiat currencies to hold their supply and if you're pre- if you're playing monopoly and there's like a hundred dollars on the game and then the banker just dumps like another two thousand like my hundred dollars isn't worth what it used to be so like why am i a, why am I using that? And B, why am I trying to save in that? So like maybe maybe use it for a few days, but like if I'm saving that and they just keep dumping more mo- money into the Monopoly game, like my money is useless. <laughs> it's theft. It's absolute theft. And it is. That, inflation, the... yeah. Inflation 100% is theft. And it's a problem. It's a, it's a tax. It's theft. It's whatever you want to call it. And it's on people that don't even know it's happening. <laughs> um, that's That's, I think, the worst part about it. And it disproportionately affects the people who have the least amount. And that's, I think, like the very worst part about this like whole thing is like inflation is going to hurt a lot of people. And it's the people that don't can't don't have the assets to to absorb it. Like the one percent or the half of one percent. Yeah, their cost of living is going up. So is their whole like stock portfolio for now. Um, So they you know, they can, in theory, sell those stocks today if they want, and their cost of living has not gone down. Um, if I'm trying to, like, if I'm someone entering the workforce, trying to buy a house, the house is going way more expensive. And I'm, I'm, my, my salary is not doing that. I'm just getting further passed by in the economy, which sucks. Like, that's very, like, uncapitalist, <laughs> which is, <laughs> doesn't make sense to me either like what's happening is like the exact opposite of capitalism <laughs> that's the worst thing as well it's the 99 percent of people like you and i we're afforded the rules of capitalism um and and the the with the rich the one percent they get a different set of rules when when they have losses they just get socialized and we end up yeah. paying for it for inflation um yeah this, I, yeah this segues into something i i wanted to bounce off you too because I heard you talking about the separation of money and state on a podcast you did with Princey and yeah. just talking about the injustice of wealth inequality and fiat. Maybe you can expand a little bit on how you see Bitcoin playing into the really big picture moving forward if we do transition onto a Bitcoin standard. Yeah. First shout out to Daniel Prince. That guy's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Daniel's the best. He, like, he actively like searches out unknown people such as myself <laughs> I was like hey do you want to come on my show and like talk about you know whatever you've written and he's done that with like so many people and he's like found these like great people and he's just like actively searching these people and that, that's what I think is cool like doesn't care who you are or where you come from or your background he's just sort of out there so anyway slight podcast massive shout out he, he orange pilled me uh just just listening to him and Kaiser in particular they're, they're great yeah yeah Max much respect for him to 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 call what he called in 2010 is crazy like i'm i'm a decade late <laughs> to him and you know i huge respect for someone who s- saw that so early but yes so like the separation of church and state like was like a feudalist thing where the church basically was like everything like the church was governments like they they sort of ran everything um and then that is you know, in modern society, like a very uh, different part of society. And the Bitcoin, what Bitcoin is, 
is like a mirror <laughs> that sort of reflects back at you and it allows for the efficient allocation of capital. And it does that because um, it's deflationary. So it, it's, it's increasing in value relative to a more abundant asset. So like, it's only gonna be 21 million Bitcoin. How many eggs? Let's just use eggs. I don't know why I keep using eggs, but there's gonna be a lot more than 21 million eggs created next year, right? So relative to that huge new supply, my Bitcoin is going to have more purchasing power. Now, it, that's great, but eventually people will want to um, invest their Bitcoin to get even more returns than what they would get in a deflationary environment. So like right now, we're, you know, Bitcoin is having insane gains 200% for 10 years. Part of that is because it's adding more people to a network of hedge, but eventually at some point, it would stabilize. Now this could be like a hundred years, who knows? Um, it would stabilize to be like a pretty consistent asset that's going up, you know, who, who knows what the amount is, 10% a year, let's just say. But most people in a, in a capitalist hungry society are going to say, well, if I invest my Bitcoin, I can get more than 10%. Like, um, have you ever read the book, The Richest Man in Babylon? I know. No, random. I haven't. Okay. So it, it's a book about... Um, a guy from like 2000 years ago, Babylon. <laughs> and it's, it's just about like economics and say, he's sort of saying, I have this money. I have this, like these shillings in gold. I can use those shillings with a bunch of other people and we can build a very productive, say windmill or aqueduct that can bring water to another area. And that can increase money for us by having you know, much more farmable land, just as an example. So what that does is um, increases GDP because everyone who is investing Bitcoin, this is why I say it's like a, a, a mirror and a, like a, a mirror ledger. If you do, if you allocate your capital ineffectively and you lose your money, you'd be like, oh, I could have just made the, I could have just made deflationary money on Bitcoin. So there's this incentive to not do anything, but there's also an incentive to do more than just the average deflation because you'll get a higher return on that. So when you, when you start having that work its way through an entire economy and everyone, <coughs> excuse me, sorry, and everyone starts to think that, all you're doing is allocating capital more efficiently. Right now, there is inefficient debt in the system that like is incomprehensible how much debt in the system is inefficient and the reason is like they don't let that debt wash out of the system they'll just print more <laughs> so like how many companies right now are like quote-unquote zombie companies like isn't it like 30 percent yeah yeah 30 percent one in one in three almost <laughs> <laughs> can cannot like sustain themselves without like money printers or like cheap cheap debt um i i would say like Okay, so one in three like can't sustain them. You put interest rates at, let's say Bitcoin is increasing at 10% a year. Interest rates at that point would probably be somewhere around 10% <laughs> if yeah. that was like the rate of what you're getting for your Bitcoin every year. Um, how many companies would survive that? Like none. <laughs> um, because the, the printers is, um, it's a crutch. And this, the system doesn't have efficient allocation of capital when you're like, giving it a crutch. Now you, you can achieve more things faster. Don't get me wrong, but it's not 
it's by definition unsustainable. And at some point it, it breaks down. It always has. If you look at any, any situation in history, it always breaks down because it's great for, it's like, it's, it's like a drug, right? Like you can, you can take it. <laughs> it's great for a little bit, you know, I'll compare it to heroin. I've never done heroin for the record, <laughs> but it's fatal in the end. Like you can keep taking it. You're never going to get the same high and eventually you're going to overdose and either really hurt yourself or like kill yourself. And that's the same thing with like printing money. It, that first high is like the best one because it's like new money into the system. And over time that like has a dominating effect and you need to print more and more money to get that same high. So that's why these um, MMTs are so dangerous because they say, Oh no, 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 it's different. This is just modern monetary theory. This is new. We can print into oblivion and they, they don't. Yeah. The problem is they're right until they're wrong. <laughs> yeah. So they're, they are right. Like, MMT does work in short areas, but where they screw up is where they say, if it failed, they just didn't print enough. And (laughs) this is like my, like intro to Twitter. Bitcoiners have been amazing to me. No one has ever, I've never, no one has ever been rude to me ever like on Bitcoin in Twitter. But I was like talking at one point saying that like the, I was like the first infrastructure bill. This was in like February or March of last year. Uh, no, yeah, of this year, uh, like the first infrastructure bill of like a, uh, in the U.S. And I was like, this is going to cause more inflation. And these um, MMTers <laughs> were saying like, no, 2008 failed because we didn't print enough. <laughs> and I was just like, that makes no sense to me. But in their mind, they're, it works because they, they just keep doing it. And the, by that logic, they're never wrong in their mind and the only time that they're wrong is when like the whole system gets into hyperinflation or completely unwinds and like at that point nobody even cares to say like haha to them because the whole system is so messed up that like it's better to just be humble and keep your head down at that point than to go back and like tell these people like i i this conversation was like in march of this year so like less than a year and I remember them saying on Twitter, like, where's, where's the inflation? Like, show me the inflation. And I was like, okay, well, you, you can't see it yet, but it's coming. Like, I mean, I could take those charts. I could take 6% inflation over the year and just like drop that to them. But like, that doesn't do anybody any good. And they'll say the same thing. They'll just say like, wow, we need to print more. And that's, that's another theme between Weimar and today is like, I remember reading when money dies and being like, totally dumbfounded that nobody <laughs> made the connection in like politics anywhere that the money printing was causing the inflation. And I was like, that's crazy. And I read this book maybe in February. I've got, a yeah, quote, this- I've got a quote here from when money dies. Uh, the yeah. chancellor would not accept no connection between printing money and its depreciation. Indeed, it remained largely unrecognized in cabinet. And that's exactly what we're seeing today. They say, no, 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 it's the supply chains. It's the, it's the semiconductor shortages. It's the energy crisis. It's the climate. Yeah. It's, it's not money printing. To me, that like I read that quote, you know, I would have been February. So like these, these breakdowns, like I would say only in July did I start seeing like politicians like really start to say, we need to print more to solve this. And I was just like, what? <laughs> like that, do you realize like, 
how similar this is to other like high inflationary events. No, and Drew, then, no, no, Drew, you're wrong. Biden yeah. says that printing more money is going to decrease inflation. That's what Biden reckons. Oh, he, and it's not just Biden. Like it's, um, it's well, it's not everybody in the Senate because there's Bitcoiners in, in <laughs> politics now, but it's a lot of people that are saying like, we've created this unnatural demand. So there's these bottlenecks. So we'll print more money to fix these bottlenecks. But what they're going to do is, create new bottlenecks elsewhere like exactly. you, you can't you're going all you've done is create unnatural demand and you can't solve that by creating more money like it you're at the end of this money solve fresh money solves everything you, you're just not gonna create that anymore so that to me is like another huge red flag and that would, i i would say i started noticing that maybe in july of this year like hey th these politicians are saying the exact same thing that they did in Weimar. But when you study Weimar, you're like, well, how could this ever happen? And obviously not making a connection to it is big. And the other thing that happened in Weimar is even when the inflation got really crazy, they still didn't want to deal with it because they'll keep printing money. And this is what I kind of realized, like, okay, it's really bad today. Um, like they should stop printing. But if you stop printing today, like the, everything, everything collapses, like the whole system unwinds. So you've got twice as much debt that you had. Like if you're just looking at that chart, you get twice as much debt as you had like two years ago and you've got, you know, 800% more than you did at the 2008 crash. So if the 2008 crash was bad and now you have 800% more <laughs> debt, how much worse do you think that's going to be? Like a lot worse, but that is not a reason to make the bubble even bigger. So <laughs> what they're doing is saying like, well, you know, like we could have maybe let the thing work itself out in 2008, but we printed more and then like, oh, well now it's even bigger. So we really shouldn't try to touch this. So all you're doing is just making tomorrow's problem worse. So like inflation solves today's issue and makes tomorrow's issue exponentially worse. <laughs> And that's never you who wants to be the politician to say, and I like, it's not, I don't want to like, I'm, I'm knocking on like them, but if I was in their position, would I say like, okay, we're not going to print money. It's going to be really bad and just let the whole system go. Probably not. Like people would like totally vilify me. Um, and so they just sort of kick the can down the road, but in high inflationary environments, these, this can will just keep, getting kicked down the road until the effects of the inflation are worse than if they didn't print any money at all. And if they didn't print any money at all, the effects are like the 2008 crash, but on steroids. <laughs> so they're going to make the saying. effects of it. Hmm? That, that's what we're seeing. Uh, each crash is getting more and more volatile, faster. Like in 2020, yeah. that, that you nailed it. In 2020, what was it? That was the fastest thirty percent crash in S and P five hundred history, and yeah, and there, there, it'll, it'll get bigger and faster. Like that'll, that's the, that's the, the heart monitor going crazy again, <laughs> because exactly. there's just more and more debt. There's more and more inefficient debt in the system. They can't unwind it. They can't raise interest rates to stop it. Like they don't have any tools left other than printing, which is interesting because that was like Ray Dalio hinted at that in that video that. A very first video that I saw. So it's like, 
to me, a hilarious, not hilarious, but a really interesting first video because he was kind of worrying about that when he did that video, which I don't know when he actually did it. I saw it sort of two and a half years ago. But yeah, you're right. So they're, they're going to keep printing until the inflation effects are so bad that it's generally supported by the public to stop printing. Which is going to be even worse. <laughs> yeah, well, I've, I've even... got circled uh, for the listeners yeah. again. I've got another chart uh, from one of your articles circled. Um, this was in 2018, 2019 when they tried to taper. They tried to get what three weeks into tapering. This is a chart of the Fed balance sheet. Stocks sold off what 25% in three weeks. And we, we all saw what ha- ha- had to happen uh, next. They had to print even more than last time. Yeah. So the other, the crazy thing about that chart is like the bottom of that, I guess we'll call it a check mark, <laughs> um, got to like 3.8 trillion in terms of assets, 3.9, some, I don't know, it's something, yeah, right there. Jerome Powell, if you go back on the chart, like where the balance sheet sort of stops and it's like very slowly runs off. Um, uh, no, uh, more, yeah, just, just left of that. Yeah. Um, yeah, right there. So at that point, Jerome Powell, like if you go back and quote what he said, and I've like tweeted about this um, a few times, he was saying like, it will be boring. It'll be so boring. It'll be like watching paint dry us lowering the balance sheet and nominalizing it to two and a half to three trillion. <laughs> and that was considered nominal or normalized. Yeah. So that's where they wanted to get to. Um and that was the other thing, like to me, like getting into this in 2019, where they were they were lowering rates. Like when I when I was sort of getting into economics, I was like, okay, this is great. They're lowering rates. They're gonna or they're the raising. Sorry, <laughs> lowering the balance sheet, raising rates. The exact yeah. opposite of what I just said. But <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, this is good. They're gonna normalize the rates to you know four and a half percent, and get the balance sheet back down. Like they they got this under control, and this is the part of the debasement, like the yellow part where you're kind of debasing at a, a rate, you think you can kind of save it, but you can't. <laughs> so, and they, they all seem to do this. Like they all have these dips. Like if you go to, yeah, there was a dip there in 1919 where the, the, they sort of tried these dips. We're like, okay, we can save it. We can save it. Like we're still in control. Um, yeah, the 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 Roman one, I would say less is of a of a dip, but more of like a, a, a shallowing of the curve for a little bit. And like, okay, well, we can still save this. And then at one point they're like, okay, no, we we can't save this. <laughs> and that's like the red part of the curve where they're like they basically have said, like, we we can't save this and we have no other solutions but to just keep printing. And that's that's where we're at today. Like the the chart's getting the, in 2018, when Powell was talking about reducing interest rate, or keep keep confusing, I'm talking yeah. about reducing the balance sheet, he was talking about lowering it, and, and they did lower it, but they started adding it back on. That was sort of repo. Like they started adding it back on at a faster rate than they were even reducing it, which I thought was interesting. And that was sort of pre COVID. So, COVID is a very convenient time, I think, for when that sort of happened based on what was going on. Yeah. Big hats on, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> For anyone listening in, I, I think COVID's the perfect excuse because they were very yeah. adamant too. Like they, they were very adamant in 2019. They were saying, oh, no, 
this is not quantitative easing. Look away, look away. There's nothing wrong here. And that's that was kind of the thing that draw, drew my attention the most. Yeah, I don't know if it was... I don't know if it was just like a convenient excuse. <laughs> Maybe that's wishful thinking. And they were like, okay, well, this is great. Like we can get out of it through printing here and just say, blame it on this. Um, or if it was some larger grand design to me, it, to me, I don't even really care. Not, neither matters. It doesn't affect how the math I is undeniable. The, the, the math is, uh, doesn't matter it's, yeah, whether it was created, you know, whether or they, whether it was ignorant or <laughs> like sinister, you know, Either way, it's it's terrible. <laughs> so I don't really care which one. If you're ignorant or dumb, or just like a, a bad person, you, you what you've done is like irreversible to the economy, regardless of your intention. Um, so there, like they, if you look um, in 2020, there, like there was that little check mark down, and then now it's like shot back up. Um, yeah. So there's that one, and then if you go higher up on the chart, there, like at the seven, yeah, the seven trillion. I don't know what they did. They tried to <laughs> drop a little bit for a little bit and realized they couldn't. And since then, if you zoom in on that, well, you, you won't be able to zoom in on that. But if you go to the Fed balance sheet chart, that is like a ski slope up now. Like that chart is bending up, which yeah. means that they're now printing money at an increasing rate. So not only did they like almost double the balance sheet, but they're not, not only are they not stopping, which it used to be about lowering, now it's not even about stopping it's about tapering like the word tapering is like the big word and i'm like what are we talking about here like <laughs> you're talking about printing at a slower rate like that's the good thing right now like they you know you're so far past reality of <laughs> of what they even can say with a straight face that uh, yeah. there that that's the quote they're, they're so far past reality of what they can say with a straight face because they can't lower. Okay, that didn't work out. They can't stop printing. They can't even slow down the printers. Like, what's the next step? There, there is, there is no other step that they can go. Like, that's this is the the last of their tools. So, I mean, what you know, could they taper? Could they slow the rate for a year or two? Maybe three, four years. Doubtful. <laughs> Are they going to try to like have one more like raise interest rates and lower balance sheet or slow the balance sheet? I think they're going to try like, um, but they're not going to get there and the economy is going to have a tumble and then they're going to jump back on. So, and the next tumble, if they try to like normalize is going to be even worse than the 2021 and they're going to come back with more money. Like they're, they're not going to, if they were going to let the system go, they would have let it go in 2020. <laughs> Yeah, I, that, I think you touched been... on it earlier. I, I think I personally think they're racing uh, before the CBDCs are ready. All the timelines for those I'm looking at look like about 2024, somewhere around there. I, I, I personally think, uh, what did you say, three to four years, doubtful. I'm with you. I, I'm expecting fireworks the next 12 to 24 months and uh, very interesting. I, I mean, yeah, how, how long? Well, if you think, if, you, if you're agreeing that, it takes 18 months for the debt that they're printing today to make its way in the system. <laughs> they're still printing. The next 18 months are going to be worse. And if they're continuing to print, like that's just going to, if you think there's breakdowns in the system now, like wait two years, yeah. you know, I don't I think, think, I don't think raising rates is going to solve that. <laughs> 
I think stocks are just going to sell off even quicker um, because when you get to this part of the currency debasement, it just gets worse. And I think this is a good segue into another one of your articles looking at the debasement of the uh, silver denarius used in the Roman Empire. Um, yeah. Because all these charts, they look very, very similar. And this just shows, it highlights that currency debasement has been tried for literally thousands of years and it always ends the same way. So maybe walk so, us through what we're looking at on screen there, Drew. Yeah, so I, I thought this was crazy too. Some people have said, and they're right <laughs> for the record, that the timelines are different and that you can like change the axes to make it look like anything. And I would agree with them. You can do that, but you can't change... The, like you can stretch it out all you want, but sooner or later the chart goes vertical, <laughs> mm. and it's I'm I'm just looking at the different um, like rates of decay I call them. So like the you know the first rate again to me this chart looks very similar. This is um, like you've got your slow and steady, then you've got your sort of forty five percent, and then you've got their like okay we we don't have control now. The Daenerys this chart is like. This chart was shown the amount of non-silver in a coin. <laughs> so it's upside, it's, it's inverted. But I wanted to invert it to make it look more like a Fed balance sheet because uh, the amount of non-silver in a coin to me is showing how the currency is being debased. And it's the same thing as printing more money. So less silver in your currency is to me the same as more dollars in your circulation so yeah that's the first uh, quote unquote assumption that i've made that you have to get beyond and then the second one is the roman period of their debasement was like 400 years <laughs> and you know us is like 40 <laughs> so there's a bit of a bit of a multiple there of like 10 times that is a bit different but if you can get past those two things the charts are very similar and to me, like, to me, they follow the same thing. They're just currencies that are being debased, devalued, and it's the rate of decay. So I, I don't really care how long one takes versus how long the other. I care that they follow these, like, very, very easily broken down, like, segments. Like, there's this slow and steady. There's this, like, 45-degree-ish sort of, um, okay, we're debasing. We know we are, but it's, it's at a consistent rate. And then people are okay with that. And then there's usually like at the consistent rate, there's usually like a drop, right? Like I can fix this period where they try to fix it or slow what they've done. And then there's this like point of like, okay, we've acknowledged that we cannot fix this and we're just going to keep printing until someone tells us not. Like <laughs> it's like someone drinking at a bar where they're like, oh, I'm not feeling great i might go home and then like you know i'm just gonna keep drinking till like i pass out that that's basically what it is no nobody's nobody's taking these guys out of the bar <laughs> until they've like had way too much and that's what's happening right now um and that's what happened in rome and rome it's rome's an interesting one because they were like a lot of similarities as like this great empire to you know us that also had these you know i want to say crash it's also much slower but the empire at some point broke apart and there were like in Rome, there were many reasons for that. Like, um, you know, war in inward fighting. You can make the same cases today. 
with the U.S. Yeah. Like failed wars, this both scenarios and Germany is the same thing. All of them stem from a lack of internal production. So I like Rome did this. The U.S. is doing this. Weimar did this. They're all if you compare it to sports, a sports team that's just trading first round picks for immediate help <laughs> and there's getting players back, but they're eroding their farm system. They're like future. And it's, it's easy to do <laughs> and you can do it and you can make, it can make you look great, right? Like you're, you're getting better. You're getting these like productive players, but it's an inefficient way to do it. And it's unsustainable. So over, over a period of time, you're just going to look around and you're like, okay, everyone's old on the team and we have no one coming to help. Like there's no young players that are good. And it's the same thing about these like internal production of their like economies. Rome was the same way. The U S the same way. They've like sh shipped all of their production outside. And now they're just, you know, you can use the printer to sort of make up for that difference for like two decades, but sooner or, sooner or later you look around and you say like, you know, we don't have the manufacturing that we used to. And we, that's, that's the same thing as Rome, same thing as Weimar. It's, it's these internal productivities have not kept up with the printers. And the printers kind of mask over that, which is sad. But it, it, if you sort of study these events, they're very similar. <laughs> and and uh, when, when people see through the printers masking things over, generally the collapse happens pretty quickly and pretty suddenly. And I think we're starting to see... Uh, people wake up, um, which kind of brings me back to a point I wanted to unpack from something sure. that you said earlier. Um, we were talking about, it was Hugo Steins, and we were talking about um, how it's actually an opportunity in a currency collapse. Like, yes, currency collapses are a little bit doomy and gloomy for anyone listening that may be new to the financial world. But if you understand what's going on, it, it is an, a, a massive opportunity if you play your cards right. So we, we are, yeah. I have taken a lot of your time already, Drew. I didn't realize we've been no, talking for so long. So I'm, I'm happy to keep chatting, but obviously I'm sure you don't want to make like a four hour podcast. But, um, <laughs> So yes. Is there any takeaways for people that are listening to all of this? They understand that the currency is broken and it is inevitably, in my opinion, uh, that it, the collapse is coming in one way, shape or another. What would, what would be the biggest takeaways that you'd, you'd say to people? Yeah. So the, the great, I mean, mainstream media calls it like the great reset that they're talking about now, but most people are going to lose all of their life savings. And there's this, huge reallocation and redistribution of wealth in these events um, that will be probably not replicated for another hundred years. <laughs> so that, that's kind of the, the stakes. Um, and I, you can either, if you, you sort of do nothing and, and don't learn about this, you are, and you're saving in dollars, you are probably going to lose a lot of your wealth. Um, if you do study this stuff and, allocate your sort of savings that you do have you you have the ability to make a a, a wealth increase that would never be possible in a stable system so um the yeah the best way to describe that is like it would be if there was ever a time for you to study macroeconomics or bitcoin um we didn't even really explain like 
why that much why we feel Bitcoin has value, but we've sort of explained why the money is broken. And I'm, I'm sure you know Bitcoin is a logical solution for its scarceness. Um, but this would be probably one of the greatest wealth distributions in the next hundred years. <laughs> and once once everything adopts to like a Bitcoin standard or a hard standard, those abilities to make these sort of um, crazy redistributions of wealth will 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 be gone. So uh, I like sense that urgency myself, like, like in 2020, I was like, okay, I need to like, I need to learn about this stuff, like ASAP, you know, <laughs> going to bed, like eyes wide open, like every night for a very long time. And that has not gone away. <laughs> so I would say to your listeners, like, What's happening right now is terrible, but if you, it, it is easily avoidable um, if you understand what's happening. Um, it's easily, it's a, there's a, a huge life raft that is very easy to get to. You just have to sort of walk to it or make the, make, make the trek learn about it to make yourself comfortable enough to make the trek to this like life raft. Um, I would say that that's, that's sort of the biggest thing. I think that's sound advice. Uh, I couldn't agree more. I want to co-sign everything you just said. Uh, it's such a asymmetric <laughs> opportunity. It, it is, it is, you will not see a greater, not only is, so not only is Bitcoin sort of disrupting the existing system, <laughs> it is also on the heels of the like greatest, like one of the greater inflationary environments that we've like ever seen historically. So, so you've got this disruptive technology that's like eating away at all other stores of wealth on the same time that you're having the traditional reserve currency, like a hundred year debt cycle, like um, Dylan Leclerc's written summarize, like um, Ray Dalio's work, like really well uh, in a couple of his threads earlier this year. Um, definitely tell your listeners to check those out. But these these debt cycles, we're sort of in this hundred year debt cycle. But we're we're in this hundred year debt cycle where lots of redistribution of wealth happens on the same time that you have a new monetary system that is sounder and better than anything that has ever come before it. So you, you've got these two things that are happening at the same time, which is crazy. It's it's a, it's a very exciting time to be alive if you understand what's happening. That's exactly what it is. Uh, I called it a double inflection point in a thread the other day because you've got, like you said, the 100-year debt cycle melting down. All that value has to go into the store of value asset. But then Bitcoin's so asymmetrically undervalued because it's a new technology. People don't even understand that it's a store of value in the first place. What is it? Like 1% of the world, 1% to 2% of the world has bought some Bitcoin out of that 1%, how many of them do you think are crazy, laser-eyed Bitcoiners like us who have a majority of our savings in Bitcoin? It's... Well, and, and most people enter Bitcoin with the, like a fiat mindset of trading it for more dollars. Um, and that's like any, any person that I speak to that has not been in the space, they're like, I'm going to buy this, I'm going to sell it here, and I'm going to get this many dollars. <laughs> and you you do, it takes a lot of sort of studying to to kind of realize like whoa there's no there's no reason to sell this <laughs> like this is the thing you sell to get <laughs> um but it, everyone sort of enters that with this 
I'm going to, I'm going to time the cycle or I'm going to trade this for more dollars. But once you get into the space more, you realize that like Bitcoin's not something you trade. <laughs> I mean, there are traders, but I'm not a trader. I'm not good at that. <laughs> I know I'm not. So yeah, you, you've got this network effect. And if you compare Bitcoin to any other store of wealth, it is cheaper <laughs> to store. It requires, I think, less energy, which I'm sure someone is going to take and say no. <laughs> but if you think about it, 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 what is the energy involved in like maintaining property rights? Like uh, Jason Lowry, I think, had that graph the other day that showed that. Like, what is the energy involved to like maintain these assets? <laughs> versus like what the energy involved to maintain the Bitcoin network. It's arguably very different. Um, even the banking system, like how many, how many people work in the current banking system? And Bitcoin is a public ledger that everyone can see. Like, why, why do you need a bank? <laughs> I, I, you don't need it. I, banks will still exist in the future, but banks will start buying Bitcoin pretty soon. I think they already are. <clears throat> because banks make money like lending money. That's <laughs> what they do. So um, most, you know, I would say that like maybe 10, 20% of banks will, you know, go the way of the Kodak company, but the other banks will realize like, if we want to still be a bank, we need to lend out what is actual money, not yeah. dollars. Um, so our banks largest will... bank over here, Drew, our largest bank. Uh, the yeah, yeah, I bank. saw that. Yeah, I saw that. And that is the tip of the iceberg for like banks because they're realizing like this is an adapt or die situation. Like banks are can coexist and banks can lend out Bitcoin. Banks lend out dollars right now. That's what they do, right? Like or you know, Aussie dollars. They they make money on the lend, like the lend rate. Um, so there's this pristine asset that they're going to try to like they're I would say within five years, probably within two years, maybe there'll be incentives from banks to pay your mortgage in Bitcoin. And there's going to be this like asymmetry where if you want to pay your fiat, it's going to cost you more than if you pay your Bitcoin. It's the same way as a bank does with a interest rate for a mortgage, like a variable versus fixed rate. They'll always push you to the way that you shouldn't go. <laughs> So like if, if, if a fixed rate is like at 2% and a variable is at 1%, they usually do that at the bottom of a, a next interest rate cycle. And I've noticed at the top, they'll get you to like lock into the, the inverse of that. So they'll, banks, banks don't really want to help you. <laughs> they want to make money from you. So they'll, they'll be someone who purchases Bitcoin just to lend it out again. So I think that's coming too, for sure. I agree. Two years yeah. is bullish. Two years, you'll be able to pay your mortgage off with Bitcoin and you get There's better rates than dollars. I like that. Elise Keeling, I think her name is, I, I might be butchering her last name. She she presented at the last Bitcoin conference and like killed it. Um, she says the majority of people will get paid in Bitcoin within four years. Yeah. Which is like a, wait, wait what? It's <laughs> uh, wild. Um, yeah, well, if the miners don't sell it, which they're not anymore. Like, well, they, they still sell, but when I, like two years ago versus today, miners were selling 
again, these, these are going to be made up numbers, but a larger percentage of their Bitcoin than they are now. Like they're selling a small percentage and just taking loans and fiat to like cover the difference for their thing and just saying like, okay, well, I'll use my Bitcoin as collateral. Um, so people, those, those Bitcoin, I don't think are going to be going back on the market. The amount of supply of Bitcoin on the market is at the lowest it's been since 2018. Yeah. I mean, there are still people that trade Bitcoin, right? Like they understand that there's still the, the fiat Bitcoin traders, but there's still more Bitcoiners that are like, I'm not trading this. Like, <laughs> I, I nearly forgot to ask you this. Uh, earlier, we were talking about pension funds, nation states, corporations, all coming into Bitcoin. And like yeah. they control the hundreds of trillions of dollars that's out there in the world that's acting as a store of value. And like you just said then, there's a lot of Bitcoiners who just simply aren't selling their Bitcoin. There's only two and a half million Bitcoins actually for sale on exchanges. H- how do you see all of these pension funds and these big big names I just rattled off coming into the Bitcoin space, fighting over such a small, limited amount of the supply. Are, are you a, a super-cycle believer or a four-year half-cycle yeah, believer? If you ask someone who understands Bitcoin if there's going to be a super-cycle, they would say yes, um, because that is the like logical thing how a bitcoiner thinks like i'm not selling you my bitcoin um so therefore nobody is selling their bitcoin um i would say there are still a lot of people who either are starting their knowledge journey like now like today or like within the last six months that will probably take one more cycle to understand it so i i don't know (laughs) to to put it i would if if I had to put money on it, I would probably lean that there'd probably be one more correction. I think that would depend based on how far it shoots past, um, like the stock to flow. Like if it if it violently corrects up, I think there could could be a violent correction down or or something. That's how it's been historically, and I don't think all of those institutions are going to be buying it with the same custodial rights as like. Bitcoiners. <laughs> yeah. So they'll see like an ability to like greed is a powerful money makes people do weird things. <laughs> so 6102. What do you, I, something else I also was about to forget to ask you. Do you think uh, coins on exchanges could be confiscated as like a national security interest in, in a hyperinflationary event? Yeah. If, and that might sound weird to people today, but if you st- if you've sort of studied history like they they wanted people's gold they wanted they encouraged people to buy back the gold at $25 an ounce and then they repriced it at $35 an ounce like that that's the history of like governments and money um so has that changed i don't think so would i keep my like coin like stat sats on an exchange no <laughs> um i would not i i think that's a it's a probability that that could happen will it will it happen i don't think so would i like r- risk that probably not <laughs> yeah I, I agree and something else uh there you go uh plebs anyone listening and you if you own bitcoin on an exchange i don't think you own the bitcoin um i'd be getting it off there um but something you said earlier uh there's still going to be institutions coming in and they have to understand and learn what the asset is 
I definitely agree. Um, I think, was it Ruffer? They were an institution that bought like $700 million worth of Bitcoin at 10 or 20K. And I, I think they sold it at the top at 60 mm-hmm. or 65K. I think we're definitely going to see lots of that. A lot of these institutions don't know what they're buying. Uh, there's there's going to be people like Raoul Paul who come in and buy Bitcoin and swap it over for a shit coin in Ethereum. And I, I think I tend to agree with you. Not everyone coming in just because they're big money. I don't think they understand it. Um, well, yeah. And I don't know. If, did we talk about this before we started recording the, the four things I was talking about? I don't remember. Was that before like the, the different accumulation periods? I don't anyway. think so. L- let's expand on it. Anyway, um, so yeah, just two things. Like one, the the institutions generally, like an institution has shareholders and people who don't care about Bitcoin, like Bitcoiners. They're more bottom line driven. So what a lot of those people will do is, if there's a huge run up in Bitcoin, they will take out their initial stake, <laughs> so that yeah. their exposure is zero. And if enough companies do that, that that creates like a huge sell pressure, and they're going to say like, okay, well we'll keep. We'll let the the rest ride, right? Like they're they're not really looking at it like that it to time it. They're just saying like, okay, well, my exposure to this asset, if it goes up, you know, tenfold, could be zero. Like I could have zero money into this asset. So I I mean, there's probably a chance that that happens, but that's the Bitcoin cycle on its own. Then you've got this inflation cycle on the other end. So the inflation on the other end is the super cycle pressure, right? Where it's just like the confidence in the dollar is eroding. So would I try to time a trade this cycle? No. <laughs> um, would would I originally have thought maybe I could? Yeah, maybe originally. But like, as you learn about Bitcoin, I was like, I'm not, I'm not smart enough to do this. So I'm just not going to. Um, that was me two but, years ago. I, that was me literally two years ago. Oh, when yeah, I got into I Bitcoin. The same way. Yeah. I, have a, I had a note when I first got into Bitcoin <laughs> that I put in my calendar at like today or like roughly around today to like sell Bitcoin. <laughs> and that was like my, and, and that's why I understand that like other people do it. Cause I was like, that's the thing that I went through. I was like, okay, well, yeah, I'm going to jump in. I'm going to trade it. I'm going to make a lot more dollars. And then as you learn about it, you're like, hey, the, the dollars aren't the answer. The, the Bitcoin is the answer. So yeah. I'm, you know, that's just like, but that, that's sort of Bitcoin changing you, right. Or changing your perception. And, Will that change companies at the institutional level? I think it would, but would it change them sort of right away to prevent one more cycle? Maybe not. But you're also getting like this, like these different accumulation zones, right? So you're you're getting like the retail guys, like that were have been in since 2017, guys. But those are also being replaced with retail investors that are billionaires mm. <laughs> that have like publicly come out and said we support this. This is a good asset. I'm not ashamed to own this, which was very different than two years ago. (laughs) So you've got retail and billionaires going, going after the same thing. You've got countries now, like four months ago, El Salvador, six months ago, that, that was the fact that a country could own it was, I would say two years away at most. Like I remember talking about it saying like, it makes sense for countries with high inflation to do this. And now you're seeing Zimbabwe talk about it. You're seeing like um, the Ukraine, Brazil, uh, Panama. They're, they're all coming out after El Salvador. Yeah, and it's it's an interesting test case. And I've seen like their GDP numbers; they have increased. I'd I really like to see what's going to happen 
um, sort of going forward. Because I, I think once you're on a Bitcoin standard, like you're, you're allocating a cash flow, ca- capital more efficiently. So I think their B- G- GDP numbers are just going to go crazy. Like it's already happening with their um, property values as sort of money comes there. So you've got countries and then, yes, there are countries banning it. But I like to me, that's irrelevant. Like all a country doing banning it is saying like, I'm not participating in it. <laughs> it's like a, it's like an ostrich with its head in the sand. And you can't ban something every year. You're just admitting that you haven't been able to successfully ban it before. So like game theory, like China could be like the last country to um, unban it or, or accumulate it. But I've, I've, I've seen articles that they're already talking about maybe reversing course. Like how long ago was that? June? When was the last correction? May? I think the, yeah, the ban was May, June, and the article was really recent. Yeah, so like you know, six months, it's like, okay, you're going to ban it. Okay, well, everyone else is going to double their money, like including countries. <laughs> um, that's great. And now other countries were, other countries that were larger populations are, are doing the same thing. So you've got that, you've got companies, you've got companies on the S&P 500, like Tesla owns Bitcoin on their balance sheet. Or I argue they don't really understand it that well. <laughs> Agreed. Um, <laughs> you've got like um, micro strategies that, has it on their their balance sheet the amount of i've been sort of tracking the amount of companies that own bitcoin there's like a website that keeps track of it uh i wrote an article i don't know it was maybe march or something about like bitcoin in like the sports world um and at the time i think there was like maybe 40 40 companies maybe 50 that had bitcoin and i'm i'm pretty sure that number is much higher now and that's just publicly traded companies that have publicly disclosed it like i can only imagine how many companies have out of that so like yeah tim i was Clark- looking at something the other day and there was uh it was doing a comparison of uh wealth that's held by public companies and wealth that's held by private companies i can't remember the exact figures but so don't quote me plebs but it was something like the amount of money in public companies was something like two to five trillion and the private wealth was like over a hundred trillion so there is so much money out there that could be buying yeah. bitcoin right now that we just don't know of well and those companies don't have to ex- disclose that right like uh, uh, there's benefits to being a private company you don't have to deal with a lot of the crap that a publicly traded company has to go through so yeah i i I can only imagine how many companies are are either having the discussion now and it's it's starting to infiltrate the banking sector right like you're seeing it at the company in australia you're seeing it um uh insurance companies like that's a insurance companies are a big one right um they're they're highly motivated to have Bitcoin on their balance sheet as it's they're they deal they always deal in risk and and they're highly motivated to have that. So you you're seeing all of these like different accumulation zones. So there could be a country that is banning Bitcoin from their government, but they have high retail adoption, like Nigeria. Yeah. <laughs> and then you can have a country that is like pro Bitcoin, but they're you know they're their residents may not be, or, or, you know, there's different ways that are like pulling people towards this adoption. Like the U S has two sitting senators on the finance committee that are like Bitcoiners. (laughs) Um, yeah. And, and that, that is like not going to go the other, like, it's not, that's not going to unwind. That's only Mm going to go one way. So I I think it's the same as the currency debasement. It's only going to speed up. It's only going to speed up and it's actually happening faster than I even thought six months ago. Yeah. 
and I, I'm like overwhelmed and stressed out at how quickly it's being adopted because I would prefer a much slower adoption to like, give me more time to, you know, get, get acquire a big, you know, we, stats. <laughs> we want to stack but, the tape corn. That's what we want to do. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, is it Labrador holder, a guy on Twitter that has this picture yeah. of, um, Forrest Gump, like celebrating the prices <laughs> with, uh, just like not celebrating. That's like me. I'm like, Oh, great. Great. It's yeah. like more expensive today. So. <laughs> And, and and that's just like partially because I'm really late to the party and, you know, starting out at like scratch, but it's happening faster than I would have. Like the first article I wrote about Bitcoin was 18 months ago and it's happening way faster. Some of the things, I don't, some of the stuff that's happening now, I don't I, I even like speculate 18 months ago. They've already like happened. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, yeah, bank check, country check, like Apple CEO. <laughs> talking yeah. that he's not ashamed to own it check that's <laughs> you know that's massive uh, you got the ceo of twitter jack dorsey tweeting about hyperinflation and bitcoin it's uh, twitter integrating bitcoin it's so jack like the comments in his tweet were like um you don't know what you're talking about like <laughs> hyperinflation don't even speak that word it's like he he's a he's right um yeah. and it's interesting to see the pushback. Like it's an uncomfortable thing to say, which I didn't ever thought it would be like when I first started writing about inflation, I never thought this would be like a controversial thing to warn people <laughs> about what's happening, but it's becoming that, but you know, I'm going to keep talking about it till they shut me down. <laughs> me too, brother. <laughs> but hyperinflation, that's hyperinflation. Like, Twitter, Twitter has enabled tipping on sort of Twitter. Like you can tip people like the lightning network is growing very quickly yeah. um and the amount of people that are sort of starting to run their own nodes or like people like me that are like getting to that process now are like increasing yeah. every year and those people aren't going to be like turning off their nodes like next year <laughs> and they're only opening up more channels than and that has like a network effect like people that like good friends that i've talked to i know that they have from when i told them about them bitcoin they are now telling other people <laughs> yeah um, because they've told me and they're like yeah i've told my brother and like so and so and i've told so and so and i've shared like your article and it and that sort of just like kind of keeps going right like so you know it, that is at a, a very large scale like we're just sort of two people talking about that, that's how this is happening sort of like everywhere so the the ground like, the groundswell of people talking about it like is growing every day and that's like a you know an it was the quickest asset to a trillion dollars. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's happening faster than any other technological adoption before it ever. Um, I, that's partially just because it's like a digitized world now. Like information gets out much faster. But like to me, it's like a a a, a blistering speed. <laughs> I'm writing an article on this, like Bitcoin's technological S curve, and yeah, like, the more I look into it yeah I, I think we really are on the precipice of something wild like people say oh bitcoin's so volatile it's so crazy it's so volatile i'm kind of making the case that it volatility hasn't even started um yeah it could, it, it could get more volatile um like an yeah. early amazon stock was really volatile yeah um but that doesn't mean that you should have sold it at two dollars <laughs> you know <laughs> have you seen um, the video then... with sailor um teaching keith mccullough uh, a lesson that <laughs> yeah 
that's great all your models are destroyed that one <laughs> yeah 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 there was a uh, funny one on sailor just talking about um oh what is her name diana or something it's like a another not laura like, is it it's a, it's another laura one but with something oh, Deidre, I, that. I think her name is oh, i actually missed uh, that it's with samson and sailor and this nice lady but she's going to get memed <laughs> for sure <laughs> just like saying like okay like level with me like it's not going up forever is it like you can't can't possibly believe that and they're like no it, it it's going up forever because it's a scarce asset and everything else is like is more abundant and she's like but but no like you you don't believe that and they're like yeah we do <laughs> so that that's I, oh, um, I think that just came out today i'm thing. putting that on my phone uh for yeah. twitter in a minute when we jump off uh that poor girl i, I think she's going to get memed <laughs> <laughs> Dale is but, such a savage well, he's very convincing when he talks. Yeah. Um, like uh, I was on the um, Twitter spaces with like him and Greg Foss the other day. Yeah. Uh, I, and that was like, he frames it in he, his level of understanding of Bitcoin is um, next level, I'll say. Yeah. Um, and he's able to explain it very clearly um, to... And that that just shows that his like understanding of it is sort of next level. So I, I always like listen to him and I mean like oh crap, like <laughs> I don't have enough Bitcoin, but you know, what can he do? That's he's the giga chat for a reason. He just listening yeah. to him and well and, and and like how much does he like how many Bitcoin he personally owns you know like a hundred thousand or something? Yeah, hundred and twenty odd thousand. Yeah, and then this company owns another 107. So, yeah, oh, shit. crazy. Yeah, I don't think he owns that personally. I think, uh, mm. I, I think I meant for his company, MicroStrategy, 100,000. Yeah. Uh, but I think, yeah, personally, he owns a few. He does own a few, 10 or 20. Well, he he owned, yeah, 20, yeah, 1,000. Yeah, 20,000. <laughs> like, boggles your mind. What would you do with that much money? But, um, uh, speak like hearing from like guys like max kaiser they always say like acquire the bitcoin first change the world afterwards kind of thing so i like um, that quote that's great yeah yeah and to me like i'm trying to help like bitcoin to me bitcoin's biggest um barrier is people learning about it <laughs> like i've never heard someone has said well maybe raul paul <laughs> who's like <laughs> learned about it and then just been like no this isn't for me i would say maybe he's like the only person that i've known about that um, did you see his tweet the other day i sold my bitcoin because the, the bitcoiners don't say good morning and good night to me <laughs> yeah he was saying that everyone is very polite in the ethereum space yeah I, I don't understand that i've never like ever had someone be rude to me on like as a bitcoiner ever yeah <laughs> I'm normally um, the one being rude to the shit coiners uh, <laughs> i haven't encountered you yet on, on twitter drew I I've, yeah, no, I, like, I, I don't understand the the argument that Bitcoiners are like toxic. Like when did telling the truth like yeah. Bitcoiners toxic maxless are the one person that is not trying to sell you something. <laughs> like exactly. they, they literally want nothing from you and they're just being honest. Um, and I value honesty quite highly. So like me too. Everyone else is either trying to make money off you or trying to um, trying to get something from you like they're not being forthcoming with you. So the person who's telling you like, as it is, is they're the, the terrible person. Like I don't buy that. 
um, ever. I've never, I've never bought that. <laughs> and I think, I think the people who tend to not like that are people that tend to stray from, I would say like Bitcoin's core ethics, yeah. <laughs> like try, they're trying to make money on the knowledge or, um, you know, other, other types of things like that. I couldn't agree more. Uh, I was trying to explain this concept to a little bit of a shitcoiny friend I've got actually the other day. He's a little bit crypto curious. Um, he was he was saying, "Oh, but the Bitcoiners are so toxic," and I was saying, "Yeah, but the reason this quote unquote crypto communities feels like it's so welcoming and open to all ideas is because they don't care if you get scammed." They're going to let no. scammers come in and they're going to let scammers, they're going to give them a platform and they're going to let them do their scamming. And I think um, I like well, you, Drew. I, I value truth and integrity. If, yeah, if, if I, I prefer like friends that just tell me like it is, you know, yeah. people are just like, yeah, that's how it is. It's like, okay, well, at least I know what I'm saying. Like, why, why talk to someone who's like, says something different behind your back or whatever. But um, the thing about, I'm actually very nervous that the SEC, like for all like quote unquote shit coins is that they're like sailors said this, that they're all, and I've, I've sort of done my own research on this as well. Like Gary Kensler, I've, I've listened to those like MIT talks that he's had like from a couple of years ago about Bitcoin. And he's, he's very much a believer in Bitcoin. Like if you go back to these talks, these are sort of before he was the chair of the SEC and he's kind of, been very clear in what he said of like what a shitcoin is mm. as an unregistered security <laughs> and like Raul, Raul had a conversation with Sailor about that saying like well we just need to change the security law but like if your use case for your coin is to change the law <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah in in planning like if you need to change the official plan or the zoning bylaw like there is very high risk for that project yeah. that you're going to get it approved and why would I own something that like, I just need to change the law and it should be good. <laughs> it, A, I don't think that's going to happen. And B, I don't think any central bank wants to compete with a thousand other centralized currencies. <laughs> like and this is where shitcoins fail because they're centralized, even Ethereum, like they're, mm. they're going against the rules. Um, like these people aren't just going to let them build out their DeFi platform that disintermediates the legacy financial system. I mean, yeah, sure, DeFi and Ethereum can do that if they can't be stopped by governments. But whenever I'm in these rooms debating shitcoiners on Twitter spaces, you always just ask them the question, do you think the US government could shut down Ethereum or any mm -hmm. proof of stake chain? Which yeah. they can. Yeah. And I don't think they want to do that today, but they are giving people ample warnings. Yes to get out of them and i like for one am very nervous for those people like you're, you're holding this like hot potato i think yeah. and i think that that can unravel very quickly because if i'm a if i'm a government i can't stop bitcoin it's too decentralized right like you, you can either join it or fight it that's kind of the beauty of it and fighting it doesn't help you it just makes you not participate in the benefits yeah but they can they can shut down any centralized currency they want. Yeah, you know that's that's very easy um, to do. So, and if they're going to come out with their own central bank coin mm. or central bank digital currency, why would I want Ethereum competing with me if I'm going to come out with my own blockchain or you know Ripple or what any of these 
that I <laughs> haven't really done any research on, but um, they, that, that's their biggest risk is the government, right? Like the government, there's a reason why Bitcoin was designed to fight government. Like, yeah, shut it down. See, see what happens. <laughs> you know, exactly. you, you can, if you do that with Ethereum, it's not like sprouting up in another country. Like Vitalik's not going to Argentina and starting it there. I, I don't think maybe he would. I don't know. But <laughs> I just don't think I just don't see that being possible. Um, so I would be very nervous holding all any of those personally. Um, and I've I've like my brother-in-law like got him onto Bitcoin. He's like, yeah, like my Ripple's been really like crashing. I'm like, oh, where did I lose you? Yeah, I know. <laughs> but this that's all like real. Well, it's it's part of the process, and everyone thinks they're like too late to Bitcoin, and that they see these other coins that are um, increasing quicker, although they're not ever <laughs> mm. over a longer period. Like maybe they have like a, you know, like Doge like had a great month, and then it's been losing money ever since, and then then that went to Shiba, and then that lost, and it's just like you're literally like playing Russian roulette with these things. Like, yep. It, that's why they call it a casino like you yeah you could you could ride a a bet but you've you've either you've done nothing nothing to benefit from that like you, there's no skill maybe there's skill that you know what the next like shitcoin that's gonna moon is but to to trade in and out of it is crazy and like if i'm telling my friends to like buy something i'm not gonna be like okay buy this but then wait for my like command to trade out of it because you're going to need to trade out of it because you can't hold this forever because it's like a piece of crap yeah <laughs> like that's not great advice to someone and that's why bitcoiners say like dollar cost average like spread out the volatility you're going to want to hold this asset forever <laughs> mm. um so just spread out the volatility that's like there you're good you don't need you don't need you don't need any more <laughs> advice it's not like okay buy it today and then trade it here and then you don't have to have it and you've got your fiat again so that's a great note to end the podcast on drew yeah uh, buy well, your bitcoin and don't don't sell it ever i i think that's i think that's a great quote to end it on um it's simple I, not easy right <laughs> i know and people people aren't people aren't used to uh just doing the easy thing and just saving because savings accounts just don't work um i think that's the Maybe, biggest yeah a fiat saving account doesn't but like bitcoin makes saving great again to oh. coin a u.s <laughs> phrase but I love that. It gives, it allows people to save again, which is awesome, right? Like people are falling, getting further behind not saving right now. And Bitcoin gives them that chance to, to be savers again. And then the other thing is like the lending market on your Bitcoin, like if you, some people call it like property, right? Or digital property, Manhattan and cyberspace. But the reason why they call it property is because you have more rights than others. So you, you have the ability to, lend it like if it's a pristine asset you can collateralize that so bitcoin eventually goes up 10 percent a year and you loan out nine percent of your stack like you can do that forever yeah <laughs> you know yeah. um so i you know people you, you tell someone that who that doesn't know the space they they don't understand but um once you get your head around deflation then <laughs> <laughs> um it opens up a lot of freedom of time that has been frankly stolen from people for a very long period of time so and bitcoin fixes that uh bitcoin yeah. makes savings great again i love that quote um yeah you can you can get a a bitcoin mega hat or something yeah. 
merchandise opportunity. Bagger. I buy one of those. Bagger. I'm, I'm making this bagger hat, Drew. Yeah, make them orange and make the lettering red or black, and you're you're good to go. I'll buy one. <laughs> For the next time I get you on the podcast, we have to wear the, our bagger hats. Uh, oh, I'd love to. I'd love to. <laughs> uh, Drew, I've had an absolute blast today talking with you. Um, do you want to, any final comments or let the audience know where they can find you and find your work? Um, sure. Yeah, we like. You can find me on Twitter. It's just my name, Drew McMartin. I think there's like an underscore. I'm not really sure. <laughs> I'll put it in the show notes. Okay, it's it's my name or some capacity of my name. And then um, we we I try to post most of our th- my threads on Twitter, and then we write longer articles because it's hard to explain more harder or harder concepts on our blog at wealthplaybook.ca. Um, uh, a friend of mine just started that and we just we basically it's kind of twofold we do that selfishly to like help us become better like investors and you know macro studiers and then then the other part is just like sharing that information sort of freely as sort of many bitcoiners do so yeah so we just post our articles and share them share them there yeah, definitely go and check them out, plebs. And we looked at a couple of the charts in your articles and they're really quick and easy, you know, five minute reads. Um, that's what I love most about your work. Yeah, I try to I try to keep it like within seven minutes. Yeah. <laughs> You'll lose. You're it's hard enough to talk to have someone read an article about finance, let alone one that's like 20 pages long. Yeah. So um I, I just say I, I also had a great time. Um thanks for having me on. I Anytime I can talk to Bitcoin, like, trust me, my wife is sick of me talking about it. So anytime I'm going to talk to someone, it's it's uh, always a treat and it's always always a good time. So now the pleasure's been mine. Uh, no, the yeah. pleasure's been mine. I've had an absolute blast and it was uh, great to meet you, Drew. So uh, thank you so much. And I'll see you guys in the next podcast. <laughs>